Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. Today, I am joined by Chairman and CEO Kyle Floyd of Vox Royalty. Vox Royalty is a publicly traded company which earns its money by earning royalties from precious metals and was rated by the Silicon Review as one of the top 50 fastest growing companies for 2021. I'm very appreciative and glad he's here. Kyle, welcome to the show. Alex, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having us. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. You know, it's always a blessing to me that I get to talk to such important, powerful people that, you know, take some time out of their day to come and teach a little bit about financial literacy. Yeah, it's fun to be with you. And uh, yeah, I think we've got some good stuff for your audience today. Well, hot diggity. And with that, let's go ahead and get into it. But before we get too, too granular, I like to start a little bit high level, but would you mind going a little bit into your background and how you became a CEO and chairman of a publicly traded company? Sure. Well, I started my career as an investment banker. And when I was an investment banker, focused on growth companies, raised almost a billion dollars worth of capital for growth stage companies. And towards the tail end of my career, I was focusing almost exclusively on the commodity sector. And what I found was a lot of investors that should have commodities in their portfolio were not truly capable of discerning how to get that exposure. And we're buying junior mining companies, major mining companies, everything in between but really not understanding what they were purchasing when it came to the equity of these underlying entities. And so I went about creating a company that I believed would be able to allow investors to invest confidently in the commodity sector and generate the best risk-adjusted returns in doing so. So just to be clear, you're not just CEO and chairman, you're also the founder of Vox Royalty. Correct. Well, alrighty then. So you talked about how most people didn't have commodities, didn't have that exposure. Do you mind taking a second and just maybe why should we have commodities exposure? And if you want to take a second, what is a commodity? When I look at what a commodity is, it's typically a natural resource that is consumed. I'm not sure if that's the actual <laughs> Webster's Dictionary definition of commodities, but that's what I would call a commodity. And what we specifically focus on are the metal commodities, the hard rock mining-based commodities that come out of the earth and that are precious metals and used for jewelry, for as a store of value, or everything to your electric vehicle type batteries, your lithiums, your cobalts, your nickels, et cetera. So we invest across the spectrum. But when we look at commodities, that's what we're specifically looking at. That's how I would generally define a commodity. But again, I'm, I can't promise you that's the Webster's Dictionary definition off the top. Oh, well, that's no problem at all. Because look, I can guarantee one thing to you and my audience, and that is that I am a huge nerd for this finance stuff. So if you don't mind, I could throw in. So the loose definition of a commodity is something that is uniform, that there is really no specificity between any of it. You don't care if you're buying gasoline from Texas or gasoline from Saudi Arabia. Gasoline is gasoline. It doesn't change. Corn is corn. doesn't matter if you got it from Nebraska or Kansas. A commodity is basically there's no difference between where you got it from or who made it. So something that is very much included in that is precious metals, which is a big category of gold, silver, potentially diamonds. So that's really what we're talking about when it comes to precious metals and your fun fact of the day. That's, that is a good fun fact. And, uh, and I think we've all learned something today. So well done, Alex. <laughs> Absolutely. And I am a huge nerd for this stuff. So it's why I'm genuinely excited to a have a podcast, be able to talk about this. And I especially get to geek out when I talk to men and women such as yourself that are in the industry really dealing with this on a day to day basis. And it's, it's just really fun for me. But I am the Webster's nerd. 
I like it. I like it. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I share your curiosity and excitement for, uh, for learning. Well, hot diggity. Well, let's get right back into it then. So we've talked about commodities, what they are, what your specific slice of life within that realm of commodities are. So why should people invest in commodities versus stocks and bonds or add commodities to their portfolio? What sort of separates that? Well, continuing with our theme of uh, geeking out in the world of finance and personal finance, commodities, especially gold, tend to have what's called a, a negative beta. And what that means is it's negative correlated with the rest of the market. And so modern portfolio construction theory, if you want to call it that, would tell you that you want a portfolio that is not all perfectly correlated. So if the market's up one day, you want a basket of assets that actually might not be up or might not be up as much. Gold offers typically that negative beta. It's a negative beta type of asset is what they call it. And so those are very valuable assets because in an event or in a situation or an environment where the stock market is not ripping, there are certain baskets of investable assets that are. And gold tends to be one of those. And so it can carry a premium in the equities market for investors that are looking to find those assets that are not correlated with the general market. And so gold does that. Okay. So essentially with beta, and this is me sprinkling a little bit of nerd on your explanation, although you want to do as well as the market, you don't generally want to do as bad as the market when things get rough. So that's where we get into diversification, where you want multiple kinds of assets so that if one goes to zero, you're not hugely in trouble. And what Kyle is bringing up with the negative beta, negative beta essentially means you're going against the grain. So for example, if you have asset A and asset B, asset A goes to zero temporarily. Well, you still have B, so you didn't lose everything. And in fact, if A is going down, B might be going up. So not only have you not lost everything, but you have some assets that are outperforming. So that is what commodities do. It's another form of diversification, and it allows you to have a little bit of separation from the market. So if the market has a bad day, you might be having a good day because you have these commodities or this separate asset class in your portfolio. Exactly. And one of the goals of portfolio management, and everyone can do this from the person that's just behind their computer investing their own assets to the wealth manager that's running a trillion dollars, what you want to achieve is the best risk-adjusted returns. And how do you do that? You need some negative beta assets in there to get really dorky and really geeky for everyone out there. That's one of the best ways to do it. And commodities specifically offer you one of those negative beta type of assets and more specifically gold. Well, I'm glad you mentioned and more specifically gold. So we talked about commodities sort of as an umbrella. And as I've explained a little bit earlier from commodities, you've got oil, corn, coffee, lumber, and of course, precious metals. So My question to you, being an expert in precious metals, why would an investor go towards precious metals as opposed to the other commodities classes that are out there? Yeah, it's exactly what we touched on. Some of those other commodities tend to be correlated more with the market. So obviously, lumber, consumption-based, GDP is going up, typically stock market's going up. You're going to see lumber and oil, usually those really heavy consumption-based commodities those are typically going to be somewhat correlated with the market. Precious metals, gold, silver, tend to have that negative correlation. And so that's really one of the benefits. You'll find that certain people are lured to gold because it's always just had that kind of mystical quality since really the beginning of time. Why I think it actually should be mystical and and somewhat interesting to investors is that it can provide that diversification of risk 
in a portfolio. Does that mean I advocate for everyone to go buy a bunch of gold, gold bars, put those on your mattress? Not necessarily. There's ways to get, I think, better exposure to that metal and to precious metals generally in the format that Vox does it. And, and that goes back to the heart of your question. Why did I found Vox? It was solving a problem for investors. Most investors didn't know how to get the best risk adjusted returns, specifically in precious metals and more broadly speaking commodities. Okay. So just to clarify, we're not just buying gold, silver, and the other precious metals for the pretty, pretty shiny, shiny, but mm -hmm. also for the risk adjusted return. Right. <laughs> it's all about risk adjusted return. Absolutely. I just had to say the phrase pretty, pretty shiny, shiny on the episode <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> so you mentioned there are better ways to invest in precious metal. So I want to get a little bit into that. What are some of the ways that you can invest in precious metals, gold, silver, copper, all that good stuff? And what would you say maybe some pros and cons of a few of those? Sure. So the most basic is actually going to a bullion dealer and buying gold or silver or what have you, either storing it in a vault or storing it under your mattress. Dollar for dollar, as gold moves up or down, that investment moves up or down. A lot of investors have a distrust for anything paper related. So buying something on your screen and having it tied to gold. So they'll actually buy the physical and say, well, at the end of the day, I know that I have this asset. It's in my vault. It's in my safe. But the problem with that is there's typically storing costs to it. At the end of the day, you're still going to have to turn that into your currency of choice, whatever that might be. Even That could even be Bitcoin. But you're going to have to turn that into a, a more liquid and fungible currency at the end of the day. And so that's kind of the, the negative there. It's also not levered. So if you believe gold's going up in price, that's not getting, giving you any leverage to that. But you are experiencing dollar for dollar the swings in gold. But there are some of those qualities that we just talked about, but those are also some of the drawbacks of it. On the other side of it, you can buy a levered gold ETF product through the stock market. The problem with that is, well, now you're very, very levered to the ups and downs. In some ways that might be desirable, in some ways that might not, but there is no risk mitigation within that. That is just pure exposure to gold swinging up and down and on a more levered basis. So if you bought a three to one leverage, gold goes down by $1, you're actually down $3, it goes up by $1, you're up $3. So that's, you know, one of the characteristics is it gives you more leverage, but it also gives you a lot more risk. That might not be um, what you're ultimately after. And then somewhere in the middle is a royalty company or a mining company. So mining company is going to go out. They're the ones that are actually mining the metal out of the ground and then on selling that and realizing revenue based off what they've mined out of the ground. They usually have significant correlation to the gold price or to the metal price that they're mining. But the challenge is these companies have very big cost structures. So what that means is you might bet right that metal prices are going to go up or you want that exposure that that company is going to have underlying cost structures and issues that will actually not have it perform the way that you had hoped when what you expected to happen actually unfolds. And so that's one of the issues with owning mining companies. And also, as an everyday investor, most investors do not have the skill set or the experience to really know what they're buying in a mining company. Very hard to distill versus most people, say, take a stock like Airbnb. Most people can understand that. That is someone renting out their house 
and Airbnb taking a cut on the way by. Most stocks, they can understand. A mining stock, I would argue, if you're not a mining engineer, not a geologist, haven't worked in the sector and have a lot of experience investing in it, it's very, very difficult to do. So what a royalty company does is we own a percentage of the revenue that an actual mining asset generates. And what that allows us to do is we take in that revenue, but we're not exposed and we're not tasked with running that mining operation, funding any of its costs. And we also have a little bit better security because that royalty typically runs with the land. So if that mining company ever has problems, goes in and out of production, goes in and out of various insolvency situations, the royalty still produces revenue to us when it's restarted and running. And so what that means is we're getting a better risk adjusted return because we're buying the revenue without so many of the risks that can really kind of tarnish gains in the underlying metal price along the way. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. A lot of great information. And I'm sure you watched me. I was typing some notes along the way, stuff to check back with you on, but lots of great information there. So I do want to address a couple points there. The first on the physical, I know I never pronounced this right. Bullion, bullion. Bullion, bullion. yeah. You could say tomato, tomato. I mean, I've always said bullion. And then I saw one person say bouillon, like they're from Cajun, Louisiana. But whatever. Physical metal. So you could go out and buy gold. I like to call this the Ron Swanson effect, where it's not sticking cash under your mattress because, you know, they've always told me you can't put cash under your mattress. But if I go buy the pretty, pretty shiny, shiny and bury it in the backyard, then I've got it for a rainy day. Now, there are several problems there, in my opinion, and that's you have to go through a dealer. You can't just go to Walmart and trade in a gold coin for a basket of groceries. And those dealers make money on doing these trades. So if gold's at $1,000 an ounce, you might actually get it at, let's say, $9.75 an ounce because they got to take their cut. So even if the gold, silver, insert precious metal here goes up, it has to go up enough to cover those costs. And then, as you said, there's storage costs. You might need to buy a safe and have it somewhere. Maybe you need to rent a safe deposit box to your local bank and put that there. Typically, unless you're burying it in the backyard, and even if you're burying it in the backyard, you're probably going to put it in a box or something. You have a storage cost, you have trading costs. It's just a whole lot of headache. And then there was something I wanted to mention. Could you go over a levered trade, or maybe I assume you were talking about a levered ETF of just using leverage in precious metals? Yeah. So, so a levered ETF of sorts, what that will do is that will essentially magnify your losses or magnify your gains. And so if you have a really bullish belief in say gold, for example, you would go buy and look for an ETF that had some leverage to the gold price. The problem with that is there's nowhere to hide if gold doesn't perform over that period of time. Um, the way that you expected, and that means your losses will be significantly magnified. So there's no there's no risk adjusted measure in there that helps you if gold were to decline on a temporary basis versus going up as as someone might expect. So it's you know, there's just it's uh, it's leveraged. You could win more, but you could lose a lot more as well. Okay, let me see if I can add just a little bit more granularity on that. I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I'm sure you'll correct me if I got it wrong, or at least I hope you will. So my understanding of a levered ETF, which personally I don't invest in, I'm going to throw that out there to the audience now, is that for every dollar in assets the ETF has, let's say it's a 2x levered ETF. So if the ETF has, just for the sake of math, $1,000, 
they don't buy a thousand dollars worth of gold. They will go get a loan, get a second thousand dollars, a thousand dollars from the investors and a thousand dollars from the bank, and then they'll go buy two thousand dollars worth of gold. Now, what this does is if that gold price doubles, well, you've now turned one thousand dollars of your equity into four thousand dollars of gold. The problem there is if it goes the opposite way, if the price of gold cuts in half, you go from $2,000 in assets. Remember, you got 1000 from the equity partners, 1000 from the bank. If that $2,000 gets cut in half to $1,000, you might think, oh, well, I put in $1,000 and it's worth $1,000, so we're good. Well, no, because now you got to pay the bank back. So not only has the value of your assets cut in half, but now you owe the bank. You only have $1,000, but you owe the bank $1,000. So effectively, you've lost everything and you're still paying interest on that money you lost. So the effect of using leverage or borrowed funds is that you magnify your gains and magnify your losses. Exactly. That's well explained. I try my best, although I got to admit, I, I cheat a little bit here because I'm actually a commercial credit analyst. So not saying I've done loans for this, but I, I am a guy who spends 40 hours a week doing loans. Yep. Yeah, you got <laughs> it. You, uh, that was impressive. Oh, what can I say? I, you spend, what, 65 episodes doing nothing but explain financial concepts. It, it happens. The amount of research you're forced to do to put out a good quality podcast is nuts. Yeah, <laughs> I, I believe it. And the last thing I wanted to cover from what you had gone over was the royalty process. So I would wonder if you could hit on that just a little bit harder of the difference between buying a mining company, which, you know, you're buying a piece of this company that goes out, buys a mine, hires the miners, miners go in, get the gold, ship the gold out. Gold is, I assume, processed versus what you guys do, which is just a royalty. So I assume you guys just own the mine and then maybe sell rights to someone to actually come physically mine it and they get a percentage. Uh, I just wonder if you can go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So what you're actually describing is typically how royalty gets created. And so I'll start with how a royalty gets created because I think for your listeners and viewers, that's going to help them understand what a royalty is and then what are we buying and what does that all mean? So what typically happens is we're buying what we call third-party royalties. A third-party royalty is a royalty that's owned by either a business, a person, an entity of some sort that doesn't actually have usually anything to do with the operation of that mining company or that asset. What happened was it's typically either, for example, we bought a royalty from a family of ranchers, prospectors, former mining companies. And what they did is they basically sold the rights to go mine the mineralization to another company. And in return, they typically would get either cash, stock, and usually a royalty. And so that royalty is basically their upside potential in that mineralization under the, under the earth that the company who's now bought the rights to go mine is hoping to realize one day. And so we buy those royalty interests, those third-party royalty interests. That's what we buy. And what that allows us to do is we, using our mining engineers and our geologists, we're able to go look for the most interesting assets with these third-party royalties attached to them that give somebody the right to the revenue that's created from this mineralization under that ground. And so we buy those assets. And that allows us to cherry pick the best assets with the best royalties at the best value and also create this diversified effect where we now have over 50 royalties and streams in our portfolio, which is giving us the revenue either from assets that are in production or assets that are going to be in production 
typically over the life of these operations. And so we, we are not tasked with running the mine. We're not tasked with operating the mine. We're not exposed to the costs of those mines. We just get the revenue generated from those assets, from these third-party royalties, and that's what we buy. So I've been sort of in my head following along, and I think I have a metaphor here to explain this, but I'm not 100% on it. So again, feel free to correct me if I've got it wrong. For the sake of the explanation, let's take it out of a mine and come up with, I would think, maybe a little bit more understandable example. So hypothetically, you've got a guy out in the middle of nowhere, has 500 acres of land because he just doesn't want to be bothered. Someone comes out there and goes, hey, you know, there's a literal gold mine on your property. If you let us come mine it, then you'll get a percentage. We'll pay you X amount per year, whatever. Yep. You get a cut. Just let us come on your land and mine for you. Dude says, sure, this arrangement is set up. Then Vox Royalty shows up and essentially buys out the property owner and says, hey, we see you're collecting these checks here from this mine, but I mean, you don't want to just keep collecting those checks year over year. Let me give you this fat sum of cash. And instead of you collecting that money from the mine, we'll collect that money. Exactly. That is exactly how it plays out. And to, I guess, put a little bit more context around it, what these agreements will typically stipulate is it will say, you are going to pay me, the royalty owner, 1% or 2% of the revenue that's generated from that asset. And so if a mine does $100 million a year, you're getting a million dollars a year from that asset. What we specialize in is typically finding royalties that are not yet in production. So you're the rancher and we've just literally bought this royalty, a royalty that we can use this example of what we just bought in Nevada. So a family that had inherited land, they become ranchers, have a very, very prospective gold target, what we believe is going to become a gold mine on their property. They have leased out the land to a bigger mining company. And in return, they took cash, they took other payments, and they received a royalty. We bought that royalty from them. That mine might not be in production for two, four, six years. We said, look, you have an asset. We'd like to buy that asset. It's not yet in production. So there's risk that, hey, one day it might not ever come into production or it might be 10 years down the road. You desire less to hold that asset and take that risk than us. And we, with our mining engineers, our geologists, believe that we can understand that asset better and hold it with a lower cost of capital than you can taking that risk of that individual asset. And so we go to you, Alex, your family has owned this royalty for generations. You don't know mining. You have other things. You, you understand, for example, tech investing better. And you say, I'd rather go create a family business, invest in tech companies, whatever it may be. You guys, Vox Royalty, you really understand mining, geology, mining, engineering. You can hold this asset for a lower cost than it's, it's real net cost to us to hold it. We'll sell it to you. And so we buy that asset and we do that in more volume than any other company on the planet. Okay. So essentially for the property owner, it's sort of, I, I just have ringing in my head, those J.G. Wentworth commercials. <laughs> the If you get long-term payments, but you, that one. Yeah. So it could be, hey, they have this royalty, but you know it takes time for a company to go out there, actually get access to the mine. Then they have to start mining it. And that's a whole ordeal, which could take years. So it's like, hey, we're going to come out and mine the stuff, but you don't get paid until we get paid, which is when we start mining. But as the property owner, you might be sitting there with, 100 ton machines coming out here and just digging stuff up and you're not getting paid for it and you might not get paid for it for years. 
then you get a friendly knock on the door from someone from Vox Royalty and he goes, hey, instead of dealing with this, here's this, I assume, very fat check. Um, you let us deal with them and we're just going to go ahead and take those rights in exchange for this really fat check on the front end. We'll take the monthly or annual payments for as long as this thing is going on. Exactly. That's exactly how it works. And you have to remember when you're holding this asset, we hold a portfolio of these assets. Some are going to perform better than expected, some worse than expected. Well, if you only own this one royalty and it performs worse than anyone would expect, it never goes into production, it never becomes a mine, you never get paid anything. And so we are built to take on some of that risk. But remember, we have mining engineers and geologists, so we are, we are risk adjusting everything that we're buying. It's creating liquidity for an otherwise, you know, for an asset that's otherwise not liquid and carries a lot of risk if that's the only asset that you have. So you don't have multiple royalties. There's just a lot of risk of carrying that individual asset. Absolutely. And then y'all take a lot of the guesswork out of it too, because if I own this land and I have a royalty agreement out with this mining company, said mining company has a scandal or becomes financially insolvent and goes bankrupt. Well, now you might never get paid because, hey, I went into this agreement thinking, oh, I'm not going to get a check for the first couple of years because, you know, that kind of thing happens. Then mining company goes bankrupt. And then because of that, there's, let's say, a curse or a negative stigma on it. So no other mining company wants to come up. You might never get paid. But if you, I don't want to say sell out, but if you sell your rights to Vox, then in that case, it doesn't matter. You got your fat check. You're done with it. It's Vox's problem, which for you guys, it's basically insurance. It's fine. If one of these things isn't performing or takes a couple of years to start really performing, well, to y'all, that's just a fly you got to slap because you've got 50 other ones that are still paying you month after month, year after year. Exactly. It's a, it's a risk equation for both the royalty owner and the buyer such as Vox. And we've built a business around finding really good royalties at really good value and also creating that liquidity situation. Uh, we bought another gold royalty in Australia. Uh, the individual really wanted to go buy a piece of real estate. He's sitting on an asset being a royalty that might not come into production for 12 months, 24 months, maybe not ever. And so we get a really good deal because we really like the asset. We believe that is going to come into production. He doesn't want to take any risk. He wants to go buy the house now that he wants to buy. And so we created that liquidity event for him. And so that is how we typically locate royalties and, and how we buy royalties. And so we're finding really good value and creating this portfolio effect for our investors where, and to be honest, most of our investments have performed better than expected. So it's really generated just significant returns for our shareholders because we've been very prudent capital allocators and disciplined capital allocators in terms of what royalties that we're buying. I'm glad you brought up the shareholders because that was going to be the next topic I was going to bring up anyway. So we've talked about how this arrangement is beneficial for the landowner or the current royalty holder, but I'm curious from a shareholder perspective. So Vox Royalty is a publicly traded stock in Canada. It's, what was it, VOX was y'all's ticker? Correct. You guys are publicly traded. So what is, I don't want to say the value proposition for your shareholders, but is Vox Royalty more of an equity stock where you're expecting most of your returns to come from capital gains? Or is it more of a REIT, sort of where you get these regular income checks and you sort of turn around and pass it off as dividend payments to your shareholders? So we are in the growth stage of acquiring royalties and realizing revenue from those royalties. 
So we have this basket of 50 plus royalties and streams. We're the second largest holder of hard rock mining royalties on the continent of Australia. And what that means is we eventually project out to be a very, very strong dividend slash annuity type of entity. Right now we're in the growth stage where we're finding really good value across a suite of hard rock commodities, namely gold and precious metals. And we are building a portfolio of these assets that's expected to generate income for generations. And we're doing it at very attractive rates of return. So we're continuing to build this portfolio that eventually either gets acquired likely by a larger royalty company, or we become a very significant dividend payer and annuity-like investment vehicle for our shareholders. Gotcha. I was figuring we'd go more the REIT right with it, because it seems with high cash flow businesses such as this, of course, once you get established, where a lot of that just turns around and gets passed on or reinvested. And that's something, again, I'm going to ask you a complete nerd question. And this is one of those times where I completely take advantage of having a podcast and having a CEO such as yourself here, uh, because I get to ask nerdy questions like this. (laughs) So from a capital allocation perspective, once you reach that tipping point of, so right now you guys are trying to acquire as many royalties as possible so that A, you're diversified, B, you have a very reliable stream of monthly or annual income coming in to be able to pay those dividends. But let's say we fast forward a year, two years, five years, however long to get to that tipping point of y'all start paying out. What is, if you've thought about it already, your planned payout ratio? Or what would be the sort of thought process on how much do we retain so that we can go out and purchase more royalties versus payout? It's a great question, Alex. And the way that we really think about it is if we can continue to reinvest our return on on equity at such a rate that exceeds really the cost of capital, we are going to continue building the business and growing the business. At such point in time that we cannot continue to reinvest our capital at a very aggressive return level, then you flip the switch and it becomes, and and not to say that we're not going to become a dividend payer between now and then, but how aggressive you are on paying dividends or how aggressively you look to potentially sell the business changes. If we cannot generate the returns that we're generating, and one of the things I want to talk about is how do we generate alpha in the royalty sector? So we're not just a royalty company. We believe we're the best royalty company. How, why is that? And how are we finding such great returns? Um, but at such point that we can't do that, you know, I would suggest you're either a very, very meaningful payout ratio, something in the magnitude of 70, 80%, 90% of free cash flow, or you're being acquired by someone that has very, very low cost of capital and therefore can pay a premium for your assets over where you're trading. And so that is the balance that you run as a, as a CEO in this industry. At some point, you're going to make one of those decisions. Gotcha. So what I'm hearing, and I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier as well, is that there's also sort of a card in the back pocket that there is a decent probability that you guys in its entirety, Vox Royalty just gets acquired by an even bigger royalty company. So it's either A, we get acquired, but in case we don't, we're going to keep acquiring as many of these royalties as we can and pay them out. But it does sound like y'all are keeping the door open for, hey, if we get bought out, we get bought out. That just means we've done a really good job here. Yeah. And I, I think that's atypical. I think most management teams, once they become CEOs or senior executives of a public company, they really like to keep their jobs. And don't get me wrong. I like to keep my job. But at the end of the day, our management team owns 15% of the company. 
we're very aligned with shareholders. How do we maximize shareholder value? And so that's always the equation that we're solving for. There are certain companies where there's, a, there's certainly a misalignment of interests between the management team and the actual public company itself and the objectives that they have and that they share respectively. And those can become misaligned. In our case, management owning so much, we want to maximize those shareholder returns and whatever that means is what we're going to do. So if that means selling the company and we don't have our jobs anymore, look, that's okay. We've maximized value for shareholders. Or if that means we eventually step away and the running costs of the business go away and you become much more like an annuity, that's okay as well. But what we're, our management team is doing for investors right now is we're aggressively growing our business and we're aggressively growing the value. And so shareholders right now are part of a growth engine that eventually projects out to be one of those situations. So your terminal value with us is either we are looked at as an annuity stream of sorts or we are bought out. You know, I'm really glad you said something in there. Just I don't know if you saw it. I was smiling big for it. So one of the issues you mentioned is the difference of opinion potentially of the management team versus the shareholders. Now, longtime listeners of my show will recognize that as being the agency theory, which we talked about around, I don't know, between episode 20 and 30, probably. But I love that you brought up agency theory. And one of the biggest ways you solve the agency theory or one of the ways you lessen it is you make those agents that run the company also owners. So if their job is to maximize shareholder wealth or if their job is to maximize shareholder returns, well, if they own a significant portion of the company, which as Kyle had said, is about 15% for Vox Royalty, well, if the shareholders win, they win because they are shareholders and not just little shareholders. They don't own 1%, they own 15 So I just want to throw that out there because you had mentioned it and I was like, aha, see, I'm not crazy. This is a real thing. Agency theory. I'm teaching y'all useful things. <laughs> and honestly, it's very useful. And I used to be an investment banker and saw it. I've seen it from the inside out. Now as the CEO of a public company and founder of a public company, look, misalignment of interests are very, very real. And you want to be picking situations to invest in where the management team is aligned and, and has stated that the shareholders are first and foremost. And you know, there's no better way to confirm that than knowing that management owns a large percentage of the business and is going to win when you win. And, and that's what it comes down to. So there are a lot of companies where management owns almost no equity in the business. And I think studies, and Alex, you probably know this better than I, but I think there's a lot of studies out there that show management teams that don't own very much of the equity of the business, those stocks typically underperform. I would bet. If there's no incentive for the company to do well and they're just working their nine to five cash in the check, then I would think that they have less incentive to do well with the company than someone like yourself or say Jamie Dimon, who owns a significant portion of the company in addition to having a good salary. Right. Right. And that's what you want. You want the management team to be aligned and be really seeking ultimate long-term value for shareholders and, and maximizing that. All righty, Kyle. So I have one last question for you. So You've mentioned there are other royalty companies out there. You've mentioned there are bigger royalty companies out there that might acquire you. But what is it that makes Vox different from any of those other royalty companies? Yeah, there's a couple of things, Alex. It's a very good question. So royalty companies have been around now for almost 20 years. And royalty companies have outperformed essentially every commodity-based benchmark that you would compare them to and also the S&P 500. So royalty companies have proven to be a very, very good asset class for investors to outperform a lot of the market that's related to commodities. 
what Vox was created to do was to be the alpha generator in the space. So to create better risk-adjusted returns for investors. There were a couple things that we did differently than most in terms of the constructs and foundations of our business. One was we have a very technical team, mining engineers and geologists looking for the best assets that have these third-party royalties over them. We connected our technical team with a database. We purchased a database that allows us to have insight onto where almost 8,000 of these third-party royalties are held all around the world. And so that's enabled a lot of the growth and enabled us to be the fastest growing royalty company in the industry, but also the fastest growing royalty company at great value. And then lastly, we've connected those two legs of the stool with a third leg of the stool, which is needed, which is deal sourcing agents around the globe. So it's one thing to have a very good technical team that can understand the mining asset, find that there's a royalty over that asset. You need to sometimes have people that can connect you with, whether it's a family office in Latin America, a prospector in the bush in Australia, a family of ranchers in Nevada. You need to have boots on the ground that can help you connect with those royalty owners to eventually transact with them. And that is what we've done I believe better than any other royalty company is combine that intellectual property with a technical team that really understands mining assets and deal sourcing agents over the last decade that can put us in play to execute in terms of transacting on these royalties. And that's allowing us to do it in more volume and better value than anybody else in the market today. Very well said. And I know I said that was the last question, but I do have one more for you before we get out of here. We spent a lot of time earlier talking about leverage in precious metals. So I was wondering. What is the leverage position of Vox? Like, are you guys going out of your way to borrow more to say do a 2X or a 3X into precious metals? Or are you guys mostly equity? Or what is the leverage component there? Great question. And I'm going to try not to make it too complicated. There's going to be leverage in terms of how we buy royalties. So not diluting our shareholders. And remember, our interest at the asset level is never diluted. That 1% of revenue doesn't get diluted whether that company goes and raises equity or any other you know, issue has a joint venture, we get that 1% of that revenue. But on the corporate side of the equation, how we go fund royalties, you're going to see more debt used, which is going to gear those returns as we talked about, and let us get better risk-adjusted returns for our equity shareholders. And then also we are going to be what we generate for leverage inherently within our business. And this is a really important principle is that there might be a million ounces that we know about right now in the ground that we're going to realize royalty revenue on at some point in time. What we also project out with our mining engineers, our geologists, is that there's another X amount of ounces in the ground. And so what we know is there right now might only be a million, but what we're projecting out is that there may be up to 2 million or 3 million ounces in certain cases, and that the mining company is working on proving out those ounces. So there's leverage in terms of, but one, we get exposed to the commodity price upswing, but those commodity price upswings cover ounces that are even yet to be discovered that we believe are in the ground. And so that provides immense leverage to our shareholders in Vox. So what I'm hearing essentially is, yes, there is leverage, but there's not a huge amount. Y'all aren't trying to double the amount of money you have to play with by doubling your equity. There is some, not a lot. Too much leverage can be a bad thing in terms of, you know, if we're using all debt to fund acquisitions, that can certainly, you know, if anything goes wrong, then you're in trouble. So we're using a moderate amount of debt to fund future growth. But the leverage of the true business model is that there's ounces in the ground that are going to come into a mine plan at some point that are unaccounted for right now. And rising commodity prices increase, inherently increase the amount of those ounces that are in the ground that are eventually going to come to us and also incentivize production increases from the underlying mining operation. So 
there's a tremendous amount of leverage within royalty companies. And that, you know, for investors that understand it, it presents a very unique opportunity. Gotcha. And, you know, I think with that, I need to thank you for your time. I've had a lot of fun here today. I hope you have as well. It's been very educational. I know I got a little bit in the weeds asking you a ton of questions that were very technical in nature. So I want to thank you for allowing me to throw those at you uh, a lot of times without warning. But before we get out of here, where can my audience find out more about you and more about Vox Royalty? So voxroyalty.com is a great place to, to learn more about Vox and also the royalty business. And then if you want to connect with us, we're on all the typical social channels and, uh, and feel free to email us at ir at voxroyalty.com. And uh, we're happy to be in touch and happy to provide further information. Well, all righty. And for all my listeners out there, you already know it, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take all those links and those are going to be in the description below. Kyle, do you have any last second words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with? Look, I think we're in a very high inflationary environment. I think investors are searching for the right ways to play that environment to protect their wealth. And I think for the investors that understand the royalty sector and get the opportunity to do a little bit more due diligence and learning about certain royalty companies like Vox, I think it's a very, very good place to invest your time and and potentially also invest your dollars to really protect your wealth uh, and also grow your wealth in an environment that we find ourselves today, which is which is probably going to be pretty heavy on inflation. All righty, Kyle. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was a very educational hour, so I'd just like to thank you again from the bottom of my heart from both me and my audience. Well, thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure to be with you and, uh, and glad we could produce some information for your listeners. For those of you out there, you have plenty of links to go check out. And while you guys are checking that out, I will see you all next week.